Today on Agnes Daily. A gentleman said, uh, wherever a story is not told, someone else will tell it. And I believe that's happened to agriculture, is that uh, I can't say agriculture is necessarily known for telling our story. And for the past hundred years or more, really we get into it because we like being with our livestock and a few people rather than living in the urban area, being around a bunch of people. Well, here we are, almost halfway through December, December 14th, Thursday edition of the Agnews Daily Podcast. Tanner and Delaney hanging out on the road today. Delaney, you got someplace to go or is it just me? Just you. I'm just working from home today, Tanner. Well, that's got to be nice some days just to hunker down in the office. I know a lot of our listeners dread office hours, but it's a task that has to be done. It is. I personally don't mind it. It gives me a little reprieve from the travel and all that stuff. So it's nice to just be at home sometimes and be able to throw a load of laundry in or catch up on things around the house. So, Yeah, I can totally see that. We do have weather updates today. We have winter storm warnings that are still in effect for much of the Southern Plains. The National Weather Service is continuing to keep an eye on a system that's going to bring another two to four inches of heavy snow on what has already fallen. This is expected in parts of eastern Colorado into Kansas and parts of Oklahoma, southwestern Kansas counties there, as well as Oklahoma and Texas could see an inch or two of snow, which is expected to start later this afternoon. Of course, roads, bridges, overpasses are those that are most likely to have poor traveling conditions. We do have here in Iowa unseasonably warm weather. Today we're looking at central Iowa reaching 55 degrees today. But this will bring some chances of precipitation towards the end of the week. We have an area of high pressure that is centered east of us and is going to combine with the breezes out of the south to potentially bring us a little bit of rain this weekend. So later into the evening tonight, we'll get down to barely freezing here in the Midwest. And we'll watch two systems that are going to merge over Iowa at the end of the day, Friday. So there could be a chance for a wet weekend in the Midwest, Delaney, but that's what I've got for news, weather news today. Well, 10 of the longer term forecasts are also suggesting that some folks might have a white Christmas. I know that's always kind of the romantic uh, vision of Christmas is it'll be snowing or it'll be a little white and then things will go away after that. But I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I know there's been several comments in the vehicles that I've ridden in that uh, wish we had snow already. And uh, I think that camp is very much so divided. Absolutely. Well, Tanner, it doesn't seem that the U.S. is divided when it comes to the economic policy ahead. Uh, As we know, the Federal Reserve was meeting this weekend. They have held interest rates steady as of Wednesday, and they've also signaled a new economic projection ahead. They said the last two years, their tightening of the U.S. monetary policy has done what it's needed to do. And ahead, heading into 2024, we're going to see lower borrowing costs, lower interest rates, Tanner. So that is certainly... uh, well received by folks on Wall Street and elsewhere. However, on the flip side, Argentina is having a little bit of an opposite effect down there. As we know, their inflation has skyrocketed over triple digits here. And as their new president, Malay, steps into office beginning of the year, he's already indicated to the Argentinian government that they're going to work to 
devalue the peso over 50%. Argentina's government has already made some steps here to allow the peso currency to plunge to $801 per dollar, $801 per dollar or 50% lower. And uh, this is what President Malay is calling shock therapy for the Argentinian economic system, as he believes that this is what needs to be done, Tanner, to get their inflation back in check. But he's also indicated that they're going to slow down exports. Uh, As we know, they're not a large trade partner of the U.S., but when they look at export taxes, it's currently 33% for soybeans, 31% for soybean meal and oil. And he said that's not going to do what they need it to do. So they're going to seek to raise their export taxes on corn and wheat and potentially adjust it lower on soybeans. But adjusting export taxes would require approval by Argentina's Congress. So this emergency measure may not make it through. But all in all, Molly's already starting to uh, put together some plans here, Tanner, to get things back in check for the Argentinian government. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes you wonder if something similar will happen in Mexico as their leadership changes as well. A couple of key components of the ag trading market might be seeing some changes. We also know that even though inflation is affecting farmers, farmers kind of fall into two different camps. The University of Illinois Urbana took on trying to segment what farmers do when they decide to store or sell their grain. The data came from 3,000 corn and soybean farmers in Illinois that was collected between 2003 and 2020. Most of these farmers had little to no off-farm income, no livestock, and no investment in buildings and in in infrastructure. The co-author from the Illinois Extension Office stated that there is a significant relationship between capital costs and farmer-held inventory. Overall, their results stated that storage costs influence storage decisions. So whether they were a matter of on-farm storage where capital costs could increase, or it was elevator storage in the form of condo or that of uh, standard out-of-the-field storage, the market responsive group who adjusted their inventory levels from year to year held smaller inventories overall. The store and ignore group, Delaney, who made fewer adjustments, just held large inventories until they were forced to sell due to space limitations. So it's quite interesting that there was an official study done, Delaney, to pretty much summarize what you and I and probably most of our listeners already understood, that there is a group that will store a kernel until they absolutely don't have any more options before selling it. Yeah, there's also been a lot of research done, Tanner, about when farmers are making those sales, about, you know, are they forward contracting? Are they waiting till they're actually harvesting the crop? And again, I don't think this come as a big surprise, but the data shows most farmers, about 60 to 70 percent, are waiting until that's rolling off the combine to actually finally make some of those sales. So, yes, that uh, is what we seem to come across as being typical. Absolutely. Tanner, this farmer might have a tough time marketing all of his grain because he's simply producing a lot. Granted, this isn't across all of his acres, but as we look at the National Corn Grower Association's annual corn yield contest, we saw once again Craig Hula was this year's winner. 
Tanner, do you want to guess what his new corn record, and not only just here in the United States, but globally, his new record was that he set this year? Shoot, I can't remember what the old one was. I want to say um, 580 bushel. Ooh, no, not quite. This year, his uh, new record-setting corn yields was 623.8 bushels per acre. I really wasn't that far off. No. <laughs> I Well, I mean, you'd be off a couple thousand dollars if you were marketing that crop. So I don't know That's if that's fair for you, but. No, that is fair. Uh, let's see other corn contests as we look at, you know, other things. He also had following his second highest yield in the 2023 contest was actually his son who had a 590 bushel per acre entry with no-till irrigated within the no-till irrigated contest. So the highest non-irrigated entry this year was 425 bushels per acre, a conventional row crop entry grown by Kevin Kalb of Dubois, Illinois. So kind of fun there, Tanner, that we get to look at these yield contest winners every year. And congrats to David for once again bringing home the bacon so you could say that's right yeah it seems like a lot of familiar names there absolutely so as i dive into my last mashup of headlines here the pipeline growth permits or the pipeline growth popularity has caused extra permits that is making the pipeline safety trust a overwhelmed division of the government. So they are struggling to keep pace with all of the applications that are put into place, as well as making sure that these pipelines, when they get installed, are done within industry regulations. So they'll continue to keep an eye on how they are going to expand their department and keep up with what federal law requires their division to do. We also got our ethanol updates for the week. As you look at that, ethanol output fell slightly week over week to 1.074 million barrels, down from 1.076, so minor change there. Stockpiles did grow to 22.1 million. That's up from 21.439 million, showing a little bit of demand slowing there. Got a couple of Gaza updates. Over half of... The Israeli bombs that have been dropped have been considered dumb bombs. I'm using air quotes, Delaney. Those that are not smart don't have uh, destination-seeking abilities, so they are dumped geographically on a space just by trajectory. U.S. National Security Advisor is scheduled to meet with Israeli officials today to help convey the White House message and get with Israel's government on the war with Hamas to see if there could be a ceasefire coming. Israeli forces continue to fight in northern Gaza. Deaths of nine soldiers in the battle there. Israeli's defense minister says nearly 19,000 people have been killed by Israeli attacks on Gaza since October 7th. Unfortunately, Israel canceled their trip to Qatar for a potential peace talk. There is now a possible second hostage release deal in conversations, but as of right now, Hamas have been unresponsive, so they're trying to resume those negotiations. As we take a look here at what everything looks there, Israel believes 115 hostages are still in the Gaza region. That would be a focus of that conversation. But That wraps up the headlines for today. I have just one final headline here as we look at 
the final closeout of some potential pandemic aid. This is a new acronym I wasn't even aware was on the radar for farmers. But for those farmers who might have filed CFAP or PPP assistance, you might also be eligible under the Pandemic Assistance Revenue Program or PARP. Producers will receive about nine and a half cents on the dollar for lost revenue during the 2020 pandemic. And on U.S. on Wednesday, the USDA announced that PARP checks are going out after the FSA agency received nearly seven billion dollars in applications from about thirty eight thousand producers. Uh, PARP was and is the last expected bit of aid for farmers who did not receive support during the pandemic from specifically that CFAP payment one or two, as well as a follow-up to the pandemic assistance for producers. Uh, USDA Administrator, or FSA Administrator Zach Dashenow said that this is going to be the last round of assistance, but he did note that it was obvious many producers were hoping for one final check here, as a lot of them did take pretty big hits during the coronavirus, especially our livestock producers. But to be eligible for PARP, farmers needed to at least a 15% loss in gross income in 2020 compared to years prior. And Duchanel said that that was somewhat unique as it was one of the first times that the FSA has delivered on a program focused on decreases in revenue. So that factor, like we said, there was about nine and a half percent or nine and a half cents was how they calculated it to all dollars lost. And so you might be receiving a check very soon if you signed up for that. If you didn't, I it might might still be possible, Tanner, that you could still get part of this paycheck. But uh, for those producers that did sign up, it should be hitting mailboxes very soon. Yeah, and there's I think I read. Uh, in an email newsletter that there's also another version or another way to get funds out of PARP. And that's for those that have FSA loans, but the mm-hmm. FSA loan has to have a payment before, I think it was like February 15th or something along those lines. Uh, so it would certainly be worth a call or a conversation to your FSA officer to see if there might be assistance that you qualify there as well. Sounds good. Well, I think that's the final headline I have for today. What about you? That's it. Let's get into markets. Sounds good. Let's do that. And here as we are sitting in the overnights today, March corn is up three pennies at 482 and a half. January soybeans up three and three quarter cents at 1311 and a quarter. So we take a look at the wheat complex here, March Chicago wheat up eight cents at six thirteen and a quarter. Hard red March winter wheat up five and three quarters cents at six thirty seven and three quarters, and March spring wheat up eight cents at seven twenty one and a half. Quick reminder: at where livestock closed on the board yesterday, February live cattle shed a dollar thirty seven. Will open this morning at a buck sixty seven twenty two. January feeder cattle shed a dollar eighty seven and a half. Will open at two seventeen thirty seven. And February lean hogs down a dollar twenty dollar fifty two and a half open this morning at sixty six seventy two and a half. Tanner, as we take a look at today's conversation, it's a fun one, a one you had with a kind of a I guess influencer of sorts who's really focused on being that next generation for his family's ranch. So let's turn it over to your conversation with Tucker Brown. 
Listeners, we've got a great story to share with you today. My pleasure to have Tucker Brown here, a father, rancher, and ag creator that we get to talk to a little bit today about what his operation looks like and what some of his goals are. Welcome to the podcast. Tanner, thanks for having me. Uh, It's an honor to be a part of it. Hey, let's get right into the conversation. First, give the listeners a little bit of background of what your ranch and operation look like. Yeah, we are a uh, seed stock operation. We're a family business, and we have been since 1895. Uh, We are, the main things we do are uh, seed stock cattle, and that's selling breeding stock, uh, black Angus, red Angus, and sim Angus bulls would be mostly what we're known for. And then uh, we are um, very involved in the American Quarter Horse Association and raising and training horses. And then we like to be involved in uh, the cattle industry as a whole for whether it's at the state level, local level, or uh, national level. We love to, to we believe agriculture needs a voice and uh, we think we are trying to do our part of being a voice. Well, it sounds like we got a lot to cover here in this conversation, but first of all, what state are you in? Where are you located? We're in North Central Texas, and uh, I guess we've been here since the beginning of 1895 is the first receipt that we have. And uh, we've been in Throckmorton County here in North Texas since 1901, and that's where where I've been born and raised, Uh, left for a little bit to go to college and came back and hadn't left. I love that. That's such a great story that a lot of producers share together in their paths into their operations. So for you, what is the passion that leads you to help with these state and national organizations as it relates to beef? Oh, Tanner, you know, I I think um, one thing I heard uh, while I was in college, it was completely separate from ag, but a gentleman said, uh, wherever a story is not told, someone else will tell it. And I believe that's happened to agriculture is that uh, I can't say agriculture is necessarily known for telling our story. And for the past hundred years or more, really, we get into it because we like being with our livestock and a few people rather than living in the urban area, being around a bunch of people. So it's not necessarily our strength. And I think there have been people telling our story inaccurately for a while. And uh, now we've seen the importance of that because agriculture is facing this uphill battle of inaccurate information that we're having to having to battle with. So that's really been what's behind our uh, passion of being involved and, uh, you know, doing our part and encouraging others to do that as well. So as you do look at your part, how have you taken about trying to get your story shared? Most, uh, I think the most important thing for, um, I mean, my dad and my granddad have both been very involved in, um, you know, state level and national level, whether it's Texas Southwest cattle raisers or NCBA and being part of committees and helping make decisions and uh, being a voice politically as well. Um, but I, I've kind of taken a different approach and, you know, how can I reach the average person, you know, whether it's a person in Chicago or a person in Kansas city that I'll never see in my life. And, um, I I think having a face, putting a face, uh, to an industry really helps build trust back. And so that was my goal. I was like, how can I, you know, how can I get our face in front of them to help them realize that we are family businesses, you know, raising beef safely. And so I took to social media uh, probably 
I mean, I've always had it, but I really started taking it seriously during COVID of sharing the truth about agriculture and the, the American rancher. And I've really had a lot of success and a lot of fun of learning how to communicate with folks who have been separated from agriculture, whether it's one generation or three generations. And we're having more and more of those. And so I've had, you know, we, we talk completely different um, and our terms are different. So I've had to change the way that I tell my story for them to best understand and feel comfortable asking me questions. And so now I'm uh, now I've got over uh, about 250,000 followers on uh, TikTok, 150,000 followers on Instagram, um, over 60,000 on Facebook. And I think people are genuinely curious about the life and uh, of the American rancher and where their food comes from. And if they want to know, then, uh, you know, I want to be the one to tell them. So as you do get to engage in these conversations and start to build a reputation and, and some respect with these these that are interested in your story, what's the most common myth or what's the most common question you get? Oh, man, I get it. Uh, because I share a lot about being a family business, um, we probably a lot of the questions or comments that I get would be about factory farming and just how you know, how bad that is or unhealthy that is. And that's, that's been a, I think a really inaccurate term that's used uh, to, to the American rancher. And I don't think it's good for us to be connected to that, but in the way that the public eye sees it. So the, I've been trying to share that, that, Hey, over 90% of American farms and ranches are family owned and operated. And even if they're not family owned and operated, they're still run by families. I think that's important to share because, you know, we eat the food that we grow and there's a lot of, a lot of places that do that. And I think it's important for them to know that, Hey, it like, I want my kids to eat safe food and they're eating what I grow. So I wouldn't give you anything that I wouldn't give my family. That's a, a really great perspective. We've actually had a couple of our listeners reach out because you know, our home state's Iowa, where I sit here as we record today, and there's a Canadian meat producer that is, you know, organic, fine, mm -hmm. drug-free, fine, mm -hmm. that is is pitching their product is superior to that of the factory farms. And Iowa got lumped into that Canadian media campaign. It's fascinating that it doesn't even have to be those outside of agriculture. It can be purely marketing schemes to promote someone else's business. Right. And, you know, that uh, I have a lot of friends that do the, the farm to plate and I do as well. Um, but it, it does bother me when when, uh, you know, a rising tide, uh, what is it? A rising tide raises all ships. Uh -huh. If we're fighting amongst ourselves and I don't think that's adding trust or um, yeah, I don't think that's adding trust. I think that's hurting the entire industry whenever you're knocking um knocking commodity beef, which is the safest beef in the world here in the United States. So um, that's why I think it's so important to know the facts and to share the truth because it shouldn't be shady. That's the great thing about the cattle business is that there, there's nothing to hide. We just get to share the truth and that's easy. Yeah. And it, it is fascinating the power that social media has as your following has grown, has it provided you any opportunities? Do you get to go speak or travel? Obviously you get to do this interview, but how's mm -hmm. that panned out for you? That has, it's taken a while. 
Um, but it is, it is, uh, recently, I guess in the past two months really taken off. Um, I'll be going to Washington state to talk to the beef council. Um, I'll be going to the American communicators, um, of tomorrow convention to speak. Um, I've been to the Florida Cattlemen's convention to speak to the, to the youth there. And so that it is allowing me to have some really cool opportunities to meet ranchers and farmers all over the country. And the cool thing is that, you know, I thought my vision would be different than theirs when really it's very, very similar. And we're just trying to learn how to best communicate what we do. And I think that we're all recognizing just how important it is to have podcasts like this to, to really share what's going on in our world. Absolutely. I mean, we, we don't have a ton of time today. So as we get ready to part ways, what's some last thoughts you want to share with our audience today? Oh, I, you know, I love to share just how important it is to learn how to tell our story. I think that's the most important part um, is learning best how to communicate that. And using the right words is important because um, I don't know if educate is the right word. I feel like um, telling someone I'm about to educate them is not a good term. So, hey, let me show you what we do. And yep. learning the right words to use has been so important. And I also really want to share just how safe our beef industry is. Uh, we're the most efficient and the safest beef in the world. And I want it to be safe because my family eats it too. So if there's an issue, I want to know about it and, and I'm going to talk about it. But so far, I've really loved learning about the safety, the protocols that the United States goes through to make sure that our beef is safe. I love that. We appreciate your time. If our listeners want to support you or follow along in your journey, what are those social media handles or the best way for them to follow you? Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok are the three main ones I use. And um, Tucker Brown, R-A-B. R.A. Brown Ranch is our ranch name. We have a, a, a page, too, that we post on. But uh, to follow myself, it would be Tucker Brown, R.A.B. Perfect. Well, thank you again for spending time with us today. We appreciate that. Thanks, Tanner. That was fun. And what a cool name, Tucker Brown. Right, Delaney? It sounds like it could be a musician. <laughs> I was thinking a rancher, which is what the guy is. But uh, put the cowboy hat on and, and move on. But what do you say, Delaney? Is that enough for today? Let's put the cowboy hat and move on, Tanner. All right. Should we let him go? Let's let him go.